tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Friendships pure and golden. Dofosco's stinking air. Walking the teeth of the Reaper's grin. And come and drink and thirst no more. I am an on God's In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Okay, good evening, morning, afternoon, everybody. This is uh, your friendly neighborhood. This is Vinyl Tap. My name is Tony Slagle, and I'm joined by my ever... uh, Histrionic <laughs> co-host Doug Cooper. We don't have time for this right now. We got an album to review. <laughs> and also our very humble producer Jonathan J M Rowe. Hello, everybody out in podcast land. And tonight we're talking about Wrecking Ball, the 18th album by Emmylou Harris. This one was a bit of a departure for her. Wait, we're not doing Mari Cyrus. No, 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 not, not Miley Cyrus. Not this week. Not this week. Uh, this is a Wrecking Ball by Amy Lou Harris. I believe there's probably, I think, at least three other albums called Wrecking Ball. <laughs> but the one we're talking about tonight is by the, uh, I don't know, she's country royalty, so I don't know if she's queen or princess or duchess or whatever, but she's definitely country. She's a courtesan, yes. Whichever one of those is the hottest. Okay. <laughs> Which doesn't matter at all. And as I was saying, this is a bit of a uh, of a um, departure for her because um, it's a collaboration with uh, producer Daniel Lenoir, and it is slathered in his production, which is what she was going for. Yeah. So um, before we get started in the album, we're going to talk a little bit about the context of it. But I do want to ask JM, this is your pick, I believe. Yes, it is. And uh, can you tell us why, you, after you know, 18 studio albums, why you picked this one in particular? Well, I've always uh, been a fan of her voice. Um, I discovered her pretty early on in my musical uh, dabblings. Uh, my dad used to listen to her quite a bit, and I always just thought she had an amazing voice. And then uh, right after I got out of college, I discovered Graham Parsons who we've talked about in a podcast before. Um, and she was a backup singer for him, or actually kind of a, uh, duet, a partner. duet partner with him quite a bit. Yeah. And that's kind of where she cut her teeth. And then uh, I think she started making albums on her own, what, in 1978 or somewhere or a around, maybe that. a little bit earlier than that. Um, but 
the main reason why I chose this particular album by Emmylou Harris is I have never introduced someone to this album before that didn't immediately just love it. And I remember when I heard it for the first time, I just immediately loved it. Um, I think it is perhaps um, Daniel Lanois' best production. Uh, I think that's also because this is probably the one where, you know, maybe outside of Brian Eno, this is probably the most collaborative album he's he's really ever made. Well, that's it's interesting you say that because I, I am one of these sort of first-time listeners to this. Um, you, you guys, you mentioned you wanted to do it. Doug did a little happy dance, pulled out his copy and shoved it in my hands. <laughs> and uh, and then in just doing the research for this, you know, found lots of videos of the two of them, Daniel and Juan and Lou Harris, performing together mm-hmm. at this time and also when they, they re-released it uh, about eight years ago. And um, And you're right, it does seem like a collaboration in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. Um, we need to say something. One of our most loyal tapsters out there introduced me to this record. Um, he's a big shot professor, but he took time out of being a big shot professor to introduce me to this wonderful album. What JM said is exactly right. I would go beyond. I don't think I know anyone who listened to this album and didn't immediately listen to it again. Yeah. It is yeah. that good, and it's extremely accessible without being trite mm-hmm. at all. Um, yeah, but but it is a, it is an interesting point how she got to this place where she wanted to do this. There's a lot of you know a lot of sort of history or not really history, but um, uh, you know the legend behind her. Uh, getting dropped from her label and, mm-hmm. and and that her new label didn't really know what to do with her and they asked her who she wanted to work with and and there there is some truth to that but um, you know the album that she did before this um, was not by any stretch a clunker and it and it charted mm-hmm. um, you know on the on the country charts there is no comfort from the cold of this valley of sorrow in my soul There's a river of darkness in my blood And through every vein I feel the flood So this idea that country music fans weren't listening, they weren't listening to her to the extent they were. I mean, she had two number one hit albums in the mid-70s. Um, but I, I do find it interesting that when, when asked... When the label's like, okay, we don't, what, what do we do with this new person we've signed? And they asked her, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to work with Daniel Lenoir. Which I guess at the time, mid-90s, he's still pretty much, you know, kind of the guy. Yeah, he really, he really is if the guy. If I remember guy. correctly, didn't she just hear uh, Bob Dylan's album? Uh, oh, Mercy. Yes, you're and absolutely that, right. That triggered the yeah. interest. Most of the time. focused all around most of the time I can keep both feet on the ground I can follow the path I can read the sign stay right with it which you know that is an unusual collaboration but it's one that Oh Mercy is one of my favorite albums certainly one of my favorite by Bob Dylan 
Well, and, and the thing about this album that I don't think is that much different than her other stuff is it's, you know, it's mostly mostly covers. I mean, Emily yeah. Harris is known as as someone who is a fantastic, a great interpreter of, of yeah. other people's music. Yeah. And this is this album's no less yeah. of a of a, you know, and I uh what am I trying to say? A example of that. If yeah. You will. Um so it's it's not it's odd in the sense that it's one of the few albums we've done that aren't isn't full of original music. I mean, the other one being the um, the uh, Ray Charles album, yeah. which was all covers. All covers. Um, but there's, anyway. th- there's something really important about what happens on this album, and that is Daniel Inouye uh, figures out what her voice is for. Right. It reminds me of the Johnny Cash um, record we talked about. Yeah. Uh, I want. This is the easiest way I think to explain this. If you will take Linda Ronstadt on one hand and Emmylou Harris on the other hand, they're very similar. Both have great voices, but very different voices. I want you to think about three Linda Ronstadt songs that she covered: or "Tumbling Dice." Mm-hmm. Uh, heat wave. Martha and Vandellas, yeah. Poor, poor, pitiful me. I want you to think about those with her powerhouse pipes coming out and singing those. Then imagine Emmylou Harris doing those, and it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. It's uh, Emmylou Harris has a soft, retiring voice. It's a plaintive it's voice. Yeah, is a good word for it. It's extremely attractive. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Well, Daniel Inouye apparently knew right from the start <laughs> what to do with that voice, and he uses it uh, perfectly. Yeah, for this record. If, if she's never, she's never. Busting her pipes, but the way yeah. she sings, she's pulling you into the yeah. song with yeah. her. I mean, you if you're a guy, you want to stand up and start protecting her from anything that hurts her. Um, <laughs> it's it's it's, um, it's she, wonderful. She's not a belter. I mean, uh, she is. She's just yeah, um, got that kind of um, almost a yodel sometimes when she's singing at. And it will, it really does. Yeah, it will bring you in. It will suck you in. Just it, um, it's beautiful. I think we need to give a bit of a background of who who she is for people out there that may not be familiar with you. Screw him, Tony. (laughs) No, wait, we're not doing that. Any, um, yes, that's gonna have to be very good. (laughs) I've I've been talked to about that (laughs) prior to her, her, um, Hits as a country solo country artist, as JM mentioned, she was attached to um, Graham Parsons for a couple albums. It's kind of interesting how she got there. So she actually had recorded an album uh, uh, called Gilded Bird, um, mm-hmm. which was I don't know early seventies maybe. It was primarily folk album. There was I think a Hank Williams song on it, um, mm-hmm. if I recall. Um, but uh, it, it was really a chance meeting that sort of got her involved with the whole Graham Parsons, uh, you know, what was happening with 
uh, country music out in California type of thing. Uh, Chris Hillman, who was in The Birds, we talked about this uh, in our our um, sweetheart, sweetheart of the, the rodeo, rodeo podcast, world famous podcast, yes, thank you. award winner. <laughs> And uh, that's where, where Graham Parsons joined the Birds, and, and he and Chris Hillman became fast friends and had a had an agenda there to drive the Birds into a country or sound. And then Graham Parsons leaves uh, because of, well, you can go back and listen to all the history. We won't get into that there. But just so happens the two of them formed a band later on called the Flying Burrito Brothers. Graham Parsons also leaves that band. And so at this moment, Chris Hillman is leading a Parson, Parsons-less version of the Flying Burrito Brothers. And it's really their last tour, and they're in D.C. And uh, one night, Kenny Wirtz and Rick Roberts from the band, they catch Emmy Lou Harris on stage, and um, she was a single mother at the time. She's living with her parents, and she's um, has divorced her first husband, and she's a real estate agent, I think, by day. And, and she's performing at night at this place called Clyde's. She's the, the performer at Clyde's. And so um, Kenny Wirtz and Rick Roberts go, and they hear her, and they're blown away by her. And so they tell Chris Hillman about her the next night. Um, it was funny because when when uh, when Rick Roberts goes back and introduces himself and says who he is, she's like, "The flying who?" Anyway, so Chris Hillman goes the next night. He wasn't going to go, but he ends up going. He goes the next night and he sees her, and again, he is equally blown away by her. As fate would have it, the night that Chris Hillman sees her he had talked to graham parsons on the phone earlier that day graham was back from europe having you know hopped around with the rolling stones and done all that stuff and he wanted to his next project he wanted to start on and do a duets project with a female very much in the vein of george jones and tammy Wynette. yeah so it was kind of kismet you know if you will yeah that this happened at the same time so um as i said the burritos are are sort of winding down uh, Chris Hillman talks Graham into coming up to the East Coast to play the last couple of shows. Graham agrees to do it. They're flying. They're in Baltimore, and Hillman can't stop talking to Graham about this female singer he heard, especially when he heard about this duets project. He's like, "I got the perfect person for you." Yeah. Um, the problem is nobody knew how to reach her. <laughs> like, well, we know where she plays. We don't have to reach her. They're all in Baltimore. The weird thing is, Emmy Lou. Emily Lou Harris's babysitter, who was, I guess, a bit of a groupie at the time, uh, is backstage. She found herself, I, I think, found herself backstage a lot. But she's backstage, and he, she she hears them talking about Emmy Lou Harris, and she's like, "I know how to get a hold of her." <laughs> and uh, so she gives uh, Graham her phone number. You know, Graham uh, calls her, tries to talk her into coming to, to Baltimore. Emmy Lou naturally says, "I don't know who you are. I'm not doing it. Why don't you come down here and see me?" Anyway, long story short, Graham goes down, uh, sees her perform. The funny thing was, while Emmy Lou had never heard of the Flying Burrito Brothers, when she told, I think, the head waiter of Clyde's that they were coming down, this guy freaked out and wrote this big cardboard sign, <laughs> performing tonight, you know, only, you know, special guest, Graham Parsons. It didn't do a thing for the, for the business, but he thought it was pretty cool. Anyway, um, so they started working together. Uh, again, long story short, she ends up flying out to L.A. to to record two critically acclaimed albums with Graham Parsons, G.P. and Grievous Angels.
Um, the, the last one was released four months after his death, and he would continue to cast a very large shadow on her um, as she started to break out and do her own thing. She didn't actually record her next album until 1975, Pieces of the Sky, which is a really a, a country album. Yeah. And a number four hit with the Lubin Brothers song, If I Could Only Win Your Love. If I could only win your love, I'd make the most of everything. I probably wear your wedding ring. My heart would never stray one dream away. If I could only win your love, I'd give my all. Which is. Uh, beautiful, fantastic beautiful. song, and I think Herb Peterson sings on that. Who also was attached to all those guys. He's been in several bands with Chris Hillman, um, and uh, the album hit number seven on the country charts, number forty-five on the U.S. album charts. Uh, it also contains a very good song that she wrote about Graham called "Boulder to Birmingham." Really great song. Hmm. Her next LP was "Elite Hotel," went straight to number one. And on the country charts and 25 on the U.S. charts. And it contained her version of this Buck Owens song, Together Again, which yeah. went to number one. And uh, the funny thing about that was his, aver- his original version, Buck Owens' original version, also went to number one. And this resulted in the two of them later on, Buck Owens and Amy Lou Harris, getting together and doing a duet called Play Together Again Again. has gone wrong. That's what I want to hear Don't play A7 Don't play B11 Let's playing to see She's got her, her, album, her third album, Luxury Liner, was also a number one country hit. Here's what's amazing about her. She had a monster... She had monster success throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, recorded tons of top... 40 country albums, including seven top tens. She's nominated for 47 times for a Grammy. Only two other female artists have been nominated more than her, and that's Beyonce and Dolly Parton. Jeez. She's won 14 times. So, you know, there's a lot of history there. So, um, again, there's a lot to pick from. I think it's, it's telling that JM picked this, and I think it's telling that Doug's response to it was such, was such glee. Again, I'm sort of on the outsides looking in, um, but don't disagree with this being an absolutely fascinating thing to listen to. Um, she was very respected, you know, even after uh, Parsons died. Uh, she was he able said that like he she killed him, <laughs> <laughs> even after murdering Parsons. <laughs> Now, now, now. Let's not start any rumors. So Don't after Graham Parsons. Conspiracy she was not like that. We'll put ourselves on the map. <laughs> she was not. Oh, you're right. But <laughs> she has had some really good band members in the past. Like Including her, space aliens. And Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But uh, I'm just kind of looking here. Well, the uh, hot band was uh, yeah. Albert, um, Albert Lee. Albert Lee and Rodney Crowler. Yeah, Rodney Crowler and Ben Keith, the pet, great pedal steel player. She must be very wonderful to work with. Yeah, because everybody, everybody seems to everybody want to. Want, you know, the, one of the things I think about when I look at this album and all the people are on it, I feel like Emmylou must have said, okay, 
Now it's my turn. If I ever sang backup for you on your album, get down here and start yeah. recording with me. Because there's a lot of guys singing backup on this thing that yeah. I'm sure. I, I mean, forever she was everyone's favorite backup singer. And I think that has a lot to do with her soft voice, mm -hmm. um, which it's a great supporting vocal. Well, you know, if, and it does great in the forefront too. You know, Graham once said he he uh, he didn't mind doing duets with guys, but it felt a little weird when you'd stare in their eyes and sing to them. So I, you know, I think she fit the bill perfectly. Yeah, she and really for other did. People because she's got a fantastic voice. She doesn't. Um, she knows. And this takes a little bit of ease to talk into, not to sound weird, but she doesn't overshadow anybody else on the stage. She's, yeah, she's. You know, per, a perfect complement to what's going on when she's a duet partner, um, and I think that's why so many people wanted to sing with her because of what she brought to the table. Yeah, and she's also, um, if you see that Graham Parsons documentary, it, it, she really kind of held the whole Graham Parsons man together. She kind of became the. The she became the main manager. person. She came, <laughs> she rehearsed them and every after she was the, the trail boss. Yeah, yeah. She's she's used to being in the spotlight. She wasn't just a backup singer, but um, you know she's during this time after Grand Parsons, she sang on that uh, Desire album by with uh, by Bob Dylan. I like to spend some time in She's saying with uh, little feet. Yeah. Well, how many people she's backed and, up? Yeah. And I, but I think it's worth hitting that note again. What Jam said. We're not trying to dis, dis, diminish her success. As I said, there are only two other women that have more Grammy nominations than her. Yeah. She's. Are you saying Carly B doesn't have more Grammy nominations? <laughs> Carly B does not have more Grammy nominations. I'm shocked. <laughs> Um, and Amy Lou Harris continues to rack up Grammy nominations when she puts out. I mean, she continues to put out really quality, yeah. like really. It's hard to, I mean, you can find things that you don't like as much as some of her other stuff, but it's hard to listen to an, an album she puts out and go, this is what happened. Because yeah. that doesn't ever enter no, your mind. And I think you could put this, I, you know, you talked about how she was country, but she was so popular outside of country. For a very long time, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think that she's one of those where you say, "Hey, I'm gonna put on Amy Lou Harris." No one groans, right? Yeah, she just <laughs> has a universal appeal. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Living on the road, my friend is gonna keep you free and clean. Now you wear your skin like iron. Your breast is hard as kerosene. Weren't your mama's only boy, but her favorite one, it seemed. She began to cry when you said and sank into your dreams. This is her 18th. Sounds like a Newman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
she uh this is her 18th studio album it's a, as we mentioned earlier it's a bit of a departure um I, I love what she says about it in interviews she said that she's zigged and zagged all over the years but this was a pretty big zag is what she said <laughs> um so anyway um uh, I think what's important to talk about before we kind of get into this album is that what Amy Lou is known for, but she's written some good songs. A, a Boulder to Birmingham is a good one. Yeah. Um, she's she, never considered herself a songwriter. No, she is a, she's a song interpreter. Yeah. And, and one of the best. And and she, uh, the thing I appreciate it, and, and I love Linda Rossat, so I, I don't want to be cruel, but. She understands the song she sings. <laughs> yeah, she, she even re- like misinterpreting things. <laughs> but she even researches them. She yeah, comes, comes. She knows exactly. They know and, where they come from, and um, the best songs on this album are the ones she picked. Yeah, she knows what she's up to when she's picking songs. Uh, anyway, I I, I find it, I mean, there's going to be a couple of things that I think uh, that are going to come up from prior podcast i think it's difficult to talk about this album without at least talking about american recordings by johnny cash because they're they're similar in in what they did Mm -hmm. um i think um there's uh what was really struck me is pretty amazing about this album compared to the big star album this big star album is so bright it's all high end this album is nothing but low. It, it's, 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 oh gosh. It's, it yeah. Wallows in the We're lows. in the basement. <laughs> yeah. We're in the, yeah. Um, I don't think is, there's nothing goes much above 440 hertz. Yeah. Which is pretty funny. I mean, it's an, it's an, al- voice. it's an album of covers, but again, not unusual for her because that's kind of what she did. She interprets songs. Let's, let's run down the songwriters on this album. Go ahead. I, I think, uh, Daniel Luan, uh, Steve Earl. Steve Earl. Yep. Julie Miller. Fantastic songwriter. Neil Young. Done a few two good tunes. Uh, Bob Dylan. Who's that? Has he written <laughs> any songs? He's, yeah, I, oh. he's a songwriter. Of okay. Note. I mean, of he's note. had some hits. Uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, Rodney Crowell. I've heard of him, too. Yeah. And Gillian Welch. Well, isn't she an Austin person? Uh, her parent, no, she's a California person. Her oh, parents I'm, actually wrote for Carol page. Burnett. <laughs> if you're lo- if you're looking for a Texas connection, which we always look we for, got, um, we got Steve Earle. We do have Steve Earle, Steve but Earl. also uh, when I mentioned uh, together, Rodney Crowell. Oh, yeah, there's that as well. But Ro- together again was written based on Bob Wills had seen an LP of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Buck Owens had seen an LP of Bob Wills and Tommy Duncan called Together Again. He goes, well, that's a song. So that's there right. you go. <laughs> and I'm happy that we were able to get Bob Wills into yet another podcast. Um, Man, you might want to insert something like Maiden's Prayer in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Great song. Um, yeah, this, uh, I, I, I will say what's, What's kind of fascinating to me about the the story behind this particular album, Wrecking Ball, is that Emmy Lou herself and everybody talks about the fact that she was not getting much attention from country radio at the time. Yeah. And that and that she was too old for country radio and that they were ignoring her. Uh, you know, what's what's funny about that is that Cowgirl's Prayer, which was his album right before this, yep. is number 34 on the country charts. So, I, I, mean, I mean, it's I, not like she was swept under the, under she the rug. She was swept under I, the rug. I, yeah. But by this time, I have no idea what was 
Yeah. Country well, radio. I mean, what in the world so, was it by this time? So <laughs> here's what's interesting in, in terms of if this album, if it, to the argument to be made that it did re kind of jumpstart her career. So after this, and we'll get into the album, but after this, she re, five years later, she releases Red Dirt Girl, which oddly enough, she wrote, I think, the majority of the songs. Yeah, on the, majority. Number and, five on the country charts. Yeah, and it was produced by Malcolm Byrne, who is an associate of Daniel Lanois. And the only reason why Daniel Lanois couldn't produce Red Dirt Girl was because he was busy, I think, on a U2 album. Well, in every album she released after this album has been a top 10 country hit. Is that right? So, uh, you know, there could be an argument that she, I mean, this album did not even place on the country charts. It won, <laughs> I don't understand it won, how it, it won a, it You won, need any other reason well, to buy this album. <laughs> it, 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 it won a Grammy for Best Folk Album. So, again, it was a marketing thing, kind of like the American Recordings thing. It was marketed as alternative. But it's understandable. I mean, is this, there are songs on here that are maybe classified as country, but I, if I'm a programmer, I don't know what to do I, with I this. Don't, I don't hear country in this yeah. very much. There's nothing country and about I, it. Uh, Except for maybe they talk about, about Texas and waltzing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that one maybe, um, which is why we're experts on this album. <laughs> um, one thing that Tony said that I think is important, uh, I read at least four interviews that all compared this to the American recording. Uh, with Johnny Cash, and uh, that's accurate. Uh, I think so. It, they think so revitalized yeah. their careers in in the same way, in a different way. Of course, Cash was all by himself, and this is a collaboration with a gifted uh, producer and songwriter and musician. But the thing they have in common is they knew what to do with the voice. Yep, yep, absolutely. Cash, you say. Everybody out of the studio. Here's your acoustic guitar. We got guitar. this big, giant voice. <laughs> yeah. and we're going to focus on it. And with Emily Harris, it's the opposite of a big, giant voice. It's this soft, vulnerable, vulnerable. Yeah. extremely expressive yep. voice. And he laid out a carpet for it to dance on. And it is So, yeah, perfect. I think this, I mean, I've, I'm a huge Daniel Lenoir fan, Um and there are albums that he's produced that I absolutely love. I think this may be his best production uh, and his best. Uh, this is basic, almost a Daniel Lanois album because he's all over the place on this. But what I think at this point in 95, he wasn't exactly like the hot producer. He wasn't because, I mean... Well, I mean, Octung Baby came out in what ninety two, and 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 the album we did, Us, was ninety one. I think no, it was ninety two as well. Okay, but I mean, Um, he was he was associated with certain artists. um, Yes, but he wasn't like like the mid to late eighties. He was the one of the guys to go to. Yeah, and as we talked about when we talked about him before, and when we talked about Jeff Lynn, he's one of those producers. That when he puts his mark on an album, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakably hit. But I think this is the one where he put his biggest mark on. It is unmistakable. You're hearing Daniel Lenoir playing the guitar. It's Daniel Lenoir um, get, ha- having the control of the boards and putting all the echo on it, uh, putting all the layers behind it. 
And, and removing all the symbols off of it. <laughs> and removing all the symbols. of symbols, but not much. Yeah. They're hard to find. Well, you know, and guess who, get, but guess who plays a lot of the drums on this? Yeah. Larry, Larry, Larry Mullen Jr. from, from, from U2. U2. J.M., tell us about this producer. Okay, so Daniel Lanois uh, was actually... He's born, not an American. He is not an American. So he is a French-Canadian. Yes, Québécois. he is Québécois. And uh, he and his brother, Bob... Uh, I'm not kidding. His brother's name is Bob. Daniel and Bob. (laughs) You call him Robert or something? Bob just sounds. I know it sounds weird. Well, that's that's part of the the, that's part of the point I'm making is that yes, they have a. He's Daniel Lanois. His brother is Bob. Bob Lanoir. And his yeah, and his sister is Jocelyn. So. It's it. It's that even though he grew up in Quebec and he he speaks French, and they all speak French. It, they there was a lot of English influence over there, so he and Bob were just fascinated by the recording process. And when they were teenagers, they actually created a studio in their mom's basement, and they started just recording local acts, people that were in the in the area. Word started getting out about how good this recording studio was and how good these guys could uh, make stuff sound. And uh, they also discovered that, you know, while Bob kind of concentrated on the actual uh, studio work and actually doing the business part of it, Daniel actually started concentrating on trying to make the sounds better or um, trying to, uh, and, and he would. Pre- play on a lot of the actual songs because he's he's kind of multi-instrumental he's a multi-instrumentalist uh he's mainly a guitar player but he's not your typical guitar player and i think that's one of the things we'll get into a a little bit later when we start going down the album going through the album but um some of the recordings that were coming out were uh making their way over to a guy named brian eno and brian eno who dad dad? (laughs) Brian Eno, if you don't know who Brian Eno is, I'm sure we'll be doing a, a uh, podcast on him eventually. Um, I hope so. Was just a kind of a, the producer, the most sought after producer in the 70s and 80s, and even even today. But uh, he was just, he, he had a very distinct sound as well. He heard Daniel Lanois and he said, hey, why don't you come? Uh, make a record with me. I'm working on this, uh, making this soundtrack of all these moon landings uh, and they're making a movie about it. Would you like to uh, join me on this? It, so the it was basically three guys in the studio. One of them was Daniel Lanois. Another one was Brian Eno's brother, Roger. First time he'd ever played anything. And Roger Eno is a uh, very good keyboard player, but he's also known as a euphonium player. Mm, and <laughs> so they make this album it that that album makes some noise Two hears that album and says, "Hey, we would really like 
you guys to produce our next album. Steve Lilly White's not available. Uh, we were trying to make a different sound anyway. Why don't you guys come in? So Eno says, sure. Can I bring Daniel Lanois with me? And that was the first album that Daniel Lanois got. Is that co- Unforgettable Fire? Unforgettable Fire. And, and I've always wondered how much of that album is Eno and how much of it's Lenoir because it sounds like it's like Lenoir puts his stamp all over that. In fact, a yeah. lot of or not a lot, but some of the stuff on this album reminds me of that yeah. album. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So after that, especially Len- when U2's bass player comes in. <laughs> so Lenoir at this point becomes by his association with uh, Brian Eno becomes a very sought after uh, musician, side musician, and uh, producer. So he starts producing albums by um, a variety of people. Probably his best known album um, at the time, pretty soon after Unforgettable Fire, was So by Peter Gabriel. Did that sell any records, Jam? <laughs> I think that album hit the big time. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What, how many. That was what four million something unbelievable. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it was uh, a monster. It's a monster album. A lot yeah. more than the one JM made us review. Yeah. So um, Brian Eno, that one's a better one. So Brian Eno <laughs> kind of went down a different path. He started working with the more avant-garde people. He did a lot of work with um, Talking Heads. Um, he, while he did do U two, he also he was always looking for somebody else to. To produce, and he was always looking for something new. Lanois kind of started uh, making his mark on late '80s, early '90s music. And one of the guys that heard so and really liked the production on it was a guy named Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan uh, heard Lanois and uh, or was familiar with Lanois's production. And Lanois, by this point, had kind of had his session guys that he liked to work with. Bob Dylan said, why don't you bring those guys over? Let's record an album in New Orleans. That album was Oh Mercy. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping. was a huge success for Bob Dylan. And a great album. And a fantastic yeah, album. Lenoir tends to have that ability to kind of... Yeah, he has an ability to just... I, I, you know, it's cheating. <laughs> if, if you cook something and you use bacon, you're cheating. Because <laughs> bacon makes everything taste good. Yeah, I don't, eat, I don't eat that He's the stuff. bacon of rock and roll. That's, that, you know what? <laughs> we don't need anything from a vegetarian... 
<laughs> Anti-American. That, that analogy. No, I think that's a. I think that's a perfect analogy no, because I would rather he, have a Brussels. Uh, no, even though I'm a vegetarian, I, I I know the glories of bacon, so I think that's perfect. He's the bacon of rock and roll. That right there is a bumper sticker if I've ever seen one. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, he's so good that if you put him on your record, you're cheating. You never yeah, know yeah. if you have a good record or not because he produced it. Yeah. Well, and this is the one-two punch. Not to get away from what you're talking about, because I do want you to finish, Jan. But this is the one-two punch. You've got Lenoir and Emily Lou Harris. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. cheating from both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And. Emily gets credit because she sought him out. She right? did. They they asked. They act, she heard Bob Dylan's "Oh Mercy," and so they the record company said, "Okay, who do you want to produce your next album?" She said, "I want Daniel Lanois to do it." It was a shot in the dark. She she didn't even think he would even knew who she was. Lanois jumped at the chance, of course, and like he uh, didn't know who she was. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, they, and this would be another time the other podcast it, would talk about how good looking she here, was. Here's what's here's what's fascinating about that partnership is so they re-released this album in 2014, and the two of them toured to support the re-release. But they also, I think, toured at the time it was released. I mean, he has he has. It seems almost as if he has more skin in this album than I agree. anything he's ever done. And I know. I, I watched the two play together and, and interviewed together. And they had a, a, a very good relationship. Yeah. And she actually had to tell him that he was on some local news show. And he goes, oh, no, we're not playing here till, till the day after tomorrow. And she goes, no, it's it's tonight. <laughs> That's hilarious. She's having to fill him in on this. And, and it's it's such a it's it was a really uh, loving, gentle relationship the two yeah. of them had. You. This album, when you listen to it, mm-hmm. it, it grabs you it, almost immediately. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it. We've done a lot of records that you have to listen to uh, ten times before you get it. This is not one of them. Yeah, not at all. You're gonna something's gonna suck you in the first I, listen, I, yeah. I, and I'll I, be surprised if it's not five somethings at least. I'm fascinated by one of the things about this album. First of all, it uh, more than almost anything we've done, it sounds. Very unified, with a few exceptions. It sounds like... Oh, it sounds incredibly unified It to sounds me. like... And I don't mean this in a bad way, like one song. I mean, there's differences, obviously. I don't... I, but it's, it's not like she's playing the same song no, over and over no, again. Right. But it does flow. Yeah. And the other thing I find fascinating about this album is um, the instrumentation underneath neath it isn't really playing a melody. It's yeah, all yeah, all soundscapes. All this yeah. is an ambient album. Yeah, absolutely. If you took yeah. her voice out, you would have an ambient yeah. album. I mean, there's almost points where you can't tell what the chord is. You can't tell if it's, no. uh, especially one of the examples, we'll get to the song later, but Waterfall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, uh, Let This Be Love. Yeah, it's just she, there's some weird drone going on. That, and she's the melody. She is the, absolutely. That's the thing. Yeah. It's and, and this is this is no way, and I know we're, we're trying to thread that needle so that we're making sure we're not discounting her, but she she is that instrument providing the melody of these songs because it's yeah. not what's going on underneath it. That's that's a depth and a layer that's something else, and then she comes over the top of it and provides that the the tune. That's right. exactly right. If 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 you <laughs> listen to this without her voice, you would have an excellent uh, ambient album. And you would have no idea what the tune to any of the songs. Yeah. Are. Right. Um, 
So, you guys ready to talk about this, or we got? Uh, yeah, let's get into the album. Here. We've been talking for two and a half hours. It's so, time to get into the album. All righty, we got the first song, which is a Danielle Lenoir composition called "Where Will I Be." So don't waste your breath. opening song again I love the guitar work on it the way that it is it starts off with just drums and Lanois weird ass sounding uh, hyper compressed hyper chorused uh, echoey guitar and drums and uh Emily Harris's voice. So uh, this is something, Jam, you talked about when we talked about the um, the Peter Gabriel album. And mm-hmm. I think it's worth mentioning on with this album as, as well with the drums. The drums are almost providing this sort of, uh, I don't know, like rhythm loop track or yeah, something. It's almost, you know? Yeah, he's, it's, it's not really, you know. It's not just a straight syncopated yeah, beat. Yeah. It's a Brian Blade, his, he's a sought after jazz drummer. He's that's his, that's his main, um, his main gig, the, the snare drum, the way that he does those, those, uh, um, rolls with just one hand. And it's an amazing drum part. And again, it just kind of creates this rumbling yeah, thunder thing it's, behind it's it. Part of Wait, the sound. It's, uh, this is not, instruments playing the music right this is instruments it's it's yeah. almost like they are the scenery in a movie oh that's it, a perfect is, analogy yeah. it is a way for these ideas to be expressed it's the yeah and they're the uh, landscape it's, yeah it's the yeah yeah it's not that's a it's not what you would expect on a jazz album where yeah where they play counter counter melody counter melody or, yeah it's it's completely different deal yeah. This is an extremely religious album, and this first song, we start out with an extremely religious song about a, uh, uh, you know, the most, re- I've said this before, the most religious people are the ones that need it the most, that are um, in desperate situations. And here, li- listen to this line. I walked to the river, I walked to the rim, I walked through the teeth of the reaper's grin. Um, that's <laughs> that's some that's some personal information. Yeah, and uh, that's that's Daniel Lenoir that that wrote these. Uh, this is a great song. He's a great songwriter. And he he really does write some very good songs. They, they don't talk about that, and I think it speaks volumes to the fact that his composition opens this album up. Because as you said, and we say it a lot, it, um, it sets the stage. It does. Right? This is, okay. Here's and I, I think Emmy Lou Harris is the reason this song opens up the album. I, I oh, wouldn't yeah. doubt that. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt that. And it's weird because 
uh, it's like I was saying, it just starts off with the drums and the guitar and Emily Lou Harris's voice. And then that bass comes in. That's, that, that is amazing. That you're is just like, what? The oh. most U2 sounding, not U2 thing in the whole world. And, and it's Daniel Lanois playing it. Than any bass U2 yeah. ever had in any of their songs. And, yeah. And, and as we mentioned earlier, that this album is very, very, you know, down in that, in that mm-hmm. range of things. And so it's, a, that's the important thing that sets that tone for these songs is yeah. that what, I mean, there's another song we'll get to where there's a, a bass keyboard on it or something yeah. playing this yeah. bizarre kind of, but it, it, it fits, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. I, I don't know a, a bass coming in and taking over a song <laughs> more than this. That's because you're not a Rush fan. <laughs> if you are, if, if you are a U2 fan, I, think it highly unlikely you won't fall in love with this immediately yeah. yeah yeah i mean there is there's a lot of familiarity i mean it's and that's not to say that that this album is is resting on the laurels of other things that daniel and does because it is not but there's a lot of familiarity with this you, if you're a fan of gabriel's stuff that he did of youtube stuff you'll listen to this and you will it'll feel comfortable but in a brand new way but in a yeah, brand, new, brand way. new way exactly yeah. exactly all right, next song is Goodbye by Steve Earle. But I can't remember if we said goodbye. But I Okay, so or I'm not gonna, by him, but written by written him. by him. Yeah, um, I love how these songs flow together, and I'm yep. also a sucker for false takes when <laughs> they keep false takes into the uh, yep. in the in the they just it's just it's like well here we are we're making this song oh we just screwed up All right now and then you hear Daniel Lanois count it off and it's it's amazing it, it's it's, it's it, a and this is one of those songs that we've talked about before where you've got someone like Steve Earle, who is a great songwriter. And, uh, and what, where is he from? He's from Texas. Shirts, Texas. Shirts, Texas. But, What's uh, more? But what, what Emmy Lou does is sort of, well, sort of this song becomes hers. Yeah. And he even admits that. And he even, plays on this song he does he plays acoustic, he plays guitar. acoustic guitar. I, I will say i like his version a whole lot oh my the, god his heart it's another heartbreaking it, it, song it, it is except for he can't do what emmy lou harris can do no him. he does he and can't so do also, that he can't wrap himself around it but there there's that uh i forget what what line it is that she sings that's so full of longing and heartbreak and hit when he sings it it's there but not it's not the not way, the same not way. the way. And and I think Doug jokingly, sort of semi tongue in cheek, when we were first talking about this album, you kept saying she she doesn't finish her words. Yeah. Um. But I think that's because there's like this just just fragileness to them. Yeah. And, and, it's, it's, yeah. It's, I'm not. He, she hits that. I know that. I know I that. that. It is. She's um, so emotionally like, distraught. Yeah. That it's impossible to get the the actual words out and. um I mean, this is one of my. What does it make you do? Jim? It makes you want to boohoo, but this is one of my. This is a boohoo album. It is We're a boohoo album. More yeah. than a few boohoo editions. But this is a fantastic song. I've 
always liked it. And I am just, when I, Amy Lou Harris's version of it is it's not been surpassed. And I don't think you can. It's no, just, a, it's, it's beautiful. It's and everybody be from Texas has to write a song about something that happened in Mexico. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be difficult to be, a songwriter of Steve Rolls caliber. I think we'd all admit he writes some fantastic. He writes a fantastic song to, um, to uh, have a song that's, you know, yours, if you will. Very have, personal. I some, mean, with the yeah. fact that he can't go back there again, yeah. a place I'll never go. That's, that's a not, line, that's, so there's a line I'm talking about. He's that's, that's a, Steve Earl. And that's he's Steve not Earl. making that up. No, that's Steve Earl. That's the line I was talking about. Thank you, Doug. He's singing it, but when Emmy Lou Harris sings it, it sounds for some reason, even more believable, yeah. you know? Um, but it's, it's gotta be something. I mean, maybe a moment of pride, but also like I, this is the song. It's not my song anymore, you know? Yeah. 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 So, which, um, <laughs> I mean, what a what an honor to have a song taken over by Emily Harris. Yeah. Um, all right, moving on. Unless we we we're ready, we're ready. Yeah, let's go to oh, All okay. My Tears by this is a song by Julie Miller. say something just off the top this is well i like the other two songs a lot this is the first song that to me that feels special for some reason it's like every to me everything clicks and it doesn't sound like anything else to me it's this kind of sparse oh yeah yeah uh this is the song with that i think with that bass keyboard that's got that yeah wow um and, and maybe it's because I'm Catholic. I don't know. But there's something about this song that hit. I'm a sucker for this song. It hits it me in the right spot. It talks about Jesus, yeah. not Mary. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> smart Alec. Um, and the chorus of it, every time I listen uh, to the song, the chorus is like, oh. Yeah. You know, what is it? Uh, I'll just read it. It don't matter where you bury me. I'll be home. I'll be free. free. It don't matter where I lay. All my tears will be washed away. Yeah. The, the, the thing about this song. Uh, something Doug said in the past, which is the the tune or the the way the song feels and the lyrics don't match. Mm-hmm. This song is a little bit that way because she's singing about something so joyous. It's like I'm I'm dead. I'm in heaven. I'm free. Nothing yeah, matters. But this song is heart wrenchingly sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's, it, it's kind of got a harsh uh, beat to it. What is a bass keyboard? So a bass keyboard is well, it's. It's kind of a misnomer. It's it's basically there's like a guitar but a bass. <laughs> no, what it is is there's different ways you can do it. So the the most popular way is a a mini moog. You put the mini moog. A mini moog has a uh, setting. You said mini moog. Everything's clear. <laughs> it's a so I think it's supposed to be pronounced mini moog. It is moog, but I, moog. I say moog too because yeah. I'm American. So the Moog synthesizer came out in the uh, 60s. Uh, it's been around for a while. But one of the things it did really, really well was it hit these very rich bass sound. So that's probably what's going on there. I mean, you can you can make it 
just and if any you've ever seen one, it looks like you need to be one of those old fashioned telephone operators <laughs> to operate the thing. Just cords yeah. coming out of all sorts of ports. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's one of the reasons when they made the mini Moog is they they got the most popular patches yeah. down, and so you, they would they're much easier. And the keyboards are like twenty four. They're only two octaves. Okay. So it, so and they're the lower octaves. Well, one thing I'd like to say about this song is. Um, I, I said at the beginning this was a religious album. This is the most explicitly uh, Christian uh, song on the album. And there is nothing more difficult to do than to write a religious song that doesn't irritate. Yeah. A- and they pulled it off here. They this, did. Well, this song is just laying it out. I mean, it could almost be a hymn, right? It, it 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 is a hymn. Yeah. And um but it does not say anything trite or stupid. Nope. It's just the facts, ma'am. And it's a wonderful song. I there's the production is wonderful, but yeah. This song could stand with someone singing it without any instruments. It it is um there's there's a connotation that comes with the religion that involves um trappings or something else. This is just a soul talking to its God, uh, confessing its um, confessing the reality Foibles, that yeah. it lives within, and then and redemption was the same way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next up is wrecking This was the song that got Emmylou Harris's juices going to make this album. Well, so JM likes this song a lot. Doug and I have a differing opinion about this song. I'll let Doug express his opinion about it. Uh, my opinion can be expressed in one simple phrase. How the hell did this get on this album? That's that's a simple phrase, I guess. I here I'll go a little bit more into into detail what what is troubling to me about this song um while emily's voice is holds my interest nothing else on this song does and i can't say that about anything else on this album so as doug Doug said you could strip her voice away and you'd have this kind of sonic album that would be fascinating to listen to this song doesn't do that for me I find it boring. I wonder if she just got tired of being everybody's backup singer all these years. She just did this to make him sing back. I I don't see. I I love the harmony vocal that comes in. That's Neil Young doing the harmony on it. I know. Wow. And uh, I think it's it's one of, I am not the biggest Neil Young fan in the world. And I really like his vocal on this. I love the way Daniel Lanois' guitar is so sparse. On yeah. it, I'm a and I love man. how everything around anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> I love how it. Um, I'm talking about Neil Young, not Daniel. Yeah. Lamar. Well, one of the things that's kind of musically interesting. They're both Canadians. Yeah. One of them came down here and delivered its great music. The other <laughs> one came down here and delivered its lectures. <laughs> but one of the things I like about the way that this song evolves is it is kind of, even though it's slow it's uh chaotic 
at the beginning of it, you don't really know where the song is actually going to resolve. And then it goes to the chorus and it's, everything is just perfect. And then it goes back into the, the chaos. You can't tell what the, what the chords are. You can't tell, you know, Emily Lou Harris is really carrying this, but even her vocals are, you don't know where they're going to land. And, and then all of a sudden they do land on the chorus. And I just think that, I mean, maybe that's the musician in me. I find that very interesting. Very well, fun. you know, the but what they're talking okay. about is not an actual wrecking right. ball. Meet me at the wrecking ball is referring to a dance. Like, Where everything goes to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's uh, move on to a song that is fantastic. Uh, going back to home. You know, one of the things that was fun, so um, when we decided to do this, Doug gave me a CD because I didn't own it. One of the fun fun things to do in listening to this was pull up and look at the instrumentation on this album. So yeah. there is an organ somewhere. Somewhere, somewhere in there, in the yeah. mix of this. No, I, I, uh, I hear it. You hear it, but it's it's not. I did I, I did the same thing. Yeah. I was trying to figure out where the hell is the organ? Yeah, in this? it's yeah. it's all atmosphere. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, it's, it, it's it's perfectly appropriate. There's an Indian there's an Indian drum on it as well. Yep. Yeah, and um, it, the the organ is played by Malcolm Byrne, who subsequently went on to work with Emily Harris on the next album. On the next album, yeah. Um, and it does kind of the song does kind of have you know like a lot of folk songs have that kind of Native American feel yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, so I guess it makes sense that I don't know if that there's idiot. something about this song. It has, um, I wanted to say it swings. I wanted to say momentum, but there's a point where she goes into the course and it seems to accelerate, even though the, uh, the rhythm doesn't speed up. Yeah. This is a great song. It just pulls you in, and then it gets to the chorus, and it speeds up, and it's done perfectly. This is written by uh, two sisters, or uh, one sister of a group of two sisters that McGargle sisters. Yeah, very, very successful and well thought of. Uh, and she, they wrote. She wrote "Heart Like a Wheel." That was oh really? That's right. That was uh, covered by Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. It's just, it's a great song. 
Let's uh, dive into the deeper well. Sunburn hot, it burned my eyes. Burned so hot, I thought I'd died. Thought I'd died and gone to hell. Looking for the water from a deeper well. This, this is another Land Lost song, right? And I yeah. guess Amy Lou Harris, did she get co writer? Three people wrote this together. Right? She's yeah. co writer and David Olney. Um, I don't know who David Olney is. I couldn't really. I Obviously, he's written a bunch of songs that a bunch of people have covered. Um, yeah. But I couldn't really. There's no songs that I recognize that he'd written. Anyway, it's the second time we find out that addiction uh, stays tight like a glove. (laughs) Um, The the drums are pretty incredible on this. There's There's a whole bunch of percussion that comes in behind it. And it's almost, this is almost a... Amy Lou Harris uh, workout. It's her song. Her, her singing is almost there the yeah. whole time. The the instrumentation behind her makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, I was going to say this is the perfect song to to show what we were talking about earlier about the melody coming from her vocals and not yeah. from anywhere from the like if you if you just heard the instrumentation you you wouldn't know like are they playing chords what what's going on back there all and there's no guitars on it it's just all sorts of drums and uh keyboards and weird synthesizers and stuff it's a pretty um, great song i love it I, it's it's i would almost put it as i think that might be my second song I think favorite should, i think you should bump it up <laughs> i think it's my second favorite song on the album every grain of sand I can see the master's head in every leaf tremble and in every grain of sand. This is written by a little fella named by the name of Robert Zimmerman. Bob Dylan <laughs> to you and me. Um, if there was a song that you probably could have left off this album, I would have been okay if you'd left. This song off of it. This song has been covered so many times. It, it's really hard to give a different spin on it. I've I've heard it so many times in so many different ways, and nobody has surpassed the Bob Dylan version. This is the, this is the most different spin on the song that's ever happened. This is the one time I wish we were doing a visual podcast because if people could have seen a slow burn turn that Doug gave me when Jam said you could leave this song off the album. It was pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah, you're just wrong, man. I don't I'm see sorry. How, I mean, it uh, sounds like it'd be it's a like fine... for the wrongest thing we've ever done. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me nice like to if you were doing a live album change. and you were going to come out and do the encore, this seems like the appropriate song to do. I don't think she needed to do the song. The song has been done so many times by so many different people. Like this? I, but it just doesn't bring anything. There's nothing. I love the Bob Dylan version of this. Well, I you can love. Do. They're not mutually exclusive. You but it just doesn't. It, but it's, when I hear it, I'm just like. It's like the Steve Earle song. I love the Steve Earle version of that song. But it doesn't change the fact that Amy Lou Harris's version is different and, and better. I don't know. I To me, it's just. It, it just didn't need to be done. It, it I when I hear that song, I want to hear Bob Dylan's doing it. I wanted to hear that arpeggio guitar that comes in. Emmylou Harris put some sort of emotional 
part to this that I don't think needs to be there. I know the verse from the Bible that that comes from, and it's like when Bob Dylan does it, it's like he's reciting the Bible. I don't need some sort of emotional thing going on behind it, is my point. I talked to Jesus this week, and he likes this version better. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Bob Dylan's uh, Christian Conversion song. Yep. Um, it's, It's a powerful song. It's a powerful poem if you were just to read it mm-hmm. uh, so um, I, I think she I want misses to just say one. something right here that's really important JM knows a lot about music and he has very good taste in music and you should not let what he just said <laughs> color your future uh, opinions of his taste that's, that's all I'm going to say SeaWorld plays on this song, too. Yeah, he does a very good... I love his guitar playing on it. I'll admit that. All right, Sweet Old World, which is a Lucinda Williams song. See what you lost when you left this world This sweet old world What you lost when you left this world This sweet old world Okay. And this is what also Neil Young and Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle are on this Yeah, song. and fantastic rendition of this song. It, it's the most straightforward song on the album, I think. It I is. think it is, yeah. yeah. And it's a straight, you can't not do this in a straightforward way, I think. If you start it, trying to atmosphere this thing up, it's not going yeah. to work. I don't know where everybody is on Lucinda Williams. But she is a superb songwriter. And what she does is she writes about things that are plain and clear. Yep. And she does it in a way that does not become trite or yeah. um, over-sentimental. And this this song so easily yeah. becomes syrupy. And it she doesn't. doesn't. And it, even even in the, in the wrong hands, it could become syrupy. But um, Sandra Williams is a great songwriter. She is. And I don't think anyone knows why. It's almost like it comes from some other place. Yeah. But this is a great this is a great song. It's perfectly clear what she's talking about. This is a song yeah. about suicide and about what a person gives up when they take their own life. Yeah. And more than that, it's about what we all have that we should be thankful for. Right. Yeah. It's it's a brilliant song and of course Emily that she we doesn't don't need to say any more about how great she covers. She covers it and it, and the original is fantastic and it's, uh it's probably the least changed of any song. Yeah. 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 Least it, changed from the original it, of any song. Yeah. That says something about the song, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is something weird about this song and nope it's quite possible nobody will agree with me, but the harmonica that comes in sounds out of place, like it's from something from the sixties, like a movie. Um, I'm thinking about. Yeah, it sounds like a like a western thing comes in. It's it, like, it is. It's it's like, it's like a Once Indian Upon a Time of the West, or yeah, like, like a little boy discovers his father was a good man after all, or something like that. <laughs> it's it's a weird. 
weird. Yeah, you know, it, it is. It doesn't match. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of to the courtship of now. Eddie's father. It reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's uh, old enough to remember what that is. I, I I vacillate back and like I listened to it this week and I remember I'm just not okay I always think that harmonica is almost a cheap way out of a song like hey we well, don't know what to do here let's uh, just have somebody Mickey blow harmonica Raviola. yeah <laughs> um so I go back and forth I don't know if this if if I like the harmonica or not. This week, though, I did like it. It, I, it is the most out of place thing on the album, and next to Wrecking Ball. <laughs> no, <laughs> Wrecking Ball just sucks. This <laughs> this doesn't necessarily suck. It just sounds weird. It's not just the harmonica, though. It's, it's Neil Young playing harmonica. Well, there you go. And, and it's it's not the multi read. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, what uh, note? It's uh, I've yeah, never heard so, him play that way before. Sweet old world don't need him around anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> Moving right along. Uh, this is going to be a fun one to talk about. This is May This Be Love. I loved this. This is my favorite song on Are You Experienced? And I was so... And I love the way that they did this. This is one of my... I I vacillate between whether or not this is my favorite song on this album. This is my third favorite song on the album. I I, I love this song. Um, I love this because it's shut up about the guitar. The guy can (laughs) sing and the guy can write. Yeah. And I always feel like telling everybody Jimi Hendrix was a songwriter, so No, I I, I uh, that's a, a valid point. I um yeah. we talked about this with Lowell George that people don't talk about what a great singer is. I have never understood why people don't talk about the way Hendrix sung. Great singer. He's a great singer and a fantastic singer. His songs are just unbelievable. Yeah. And this is one except for the doing doing thing. <laughs> but uh, and the and the funny thing about this song, I mean, it gets the you know like everything else on this, the full Lenoir treatment. But it, it's it, it sounds to me it main it remains or maintains some of the trueness of the original. Yeah, yeah, I, and, I and it does, really it does. I, that, that's but, I went um, back and listened to the original today, and just went, yeah, they did a pretty good job. There's a couple of things where Hendrix did some studio tricks that didn't go on. I, 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 this loved, I think he was. He did a great job of the things he left out of the Hendrix version. So yeah, there's a yeah. couple of things that I think are really great about this. I, Lenoir sings sings with harmony. harmony yeah, sound, they sound. He's great. a hell of a singer, man. They sound he, fantastic yeah. together, the two of them. This is going to sound weird, but the first time I heard this, it felt familiar to me in a way, and not because it was a Hendrix song. I was like, "Why does this? What does this remind me of?" And it it, it it's like if. If Gabriel had done MLK off of the Unforgettable Fire and put it on yes, yeah. that's what this reminded me of wow. for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> that's <laughs> really yeah, yeah, like MLK don't, gone through the filter of, yeah. of the Us album. Yeah. Sleep. 
No, it's it, such cool noises. I don't even I know call it's, it music. I think it's noises that he makes. They're just, but they're still emotionally oh, connected. They're very yeah. evocative. They, yeah. uh, perfect word, Doug. Um, and you would never think, uh, knowing this song, you look at it and go, "This won't work." Yeah, and it does. It does. It works perfectly. Yeah, and I, I'm guessing it has to be a landwag. I think he picked it. Picked it. I yeah. mean, it's a. I I think he'd been. Fooling with this thing before he got here. And yeah. Because he, yeah. he hit the, 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 this yeah. was no, hmm, let's see what would work. <laughs> this this thing's very, but very. But oh, the guitar part on it, the the, the solo is in, uh, you know, the original. This is, he's a, he does very cool things with guitar. Yeah. This is the peak on the album. He is. It, it, guitar, cool I agree things. with you. Yeah. It, it's the peak of cool guitar parts and if you listen to the hendrix version it's sort of the same deal he doesn't do any weird ass he doesn't do a massive solo or anything on it and um it's it's that there's some there's a weird similarity between the bridges of both songs yeah that that, uh i think is maybe the only thing i you know the the effects that uh are used are, are a little different all right so moving on to a song that'll make you do what, Jan? Boo-hoo. Is Orphan Girl by Gillian Wells. I am an orphan on God's island, but I Yeah, it is a I great think song. I start boohooing in the first five <laughs> seconds, even before anyone says a word. Just the association. With, yeah, you're, with you're looking at the name. Up. Yeah, I, I didn't. I we talked about this a little before we started. I didn't realize this song was this song's like a year before Gillian Welch cut it on her on her album. Yeah. I had no idea that Emmy Lou Harris did it first. But yeah, uh, yeah, what a what a fantastic song. You know, we also give, need to give some props to Jillian Welsh. She has just written some amazing songs. Uh, there's people that recognize her brilliance, like T-Bone Burnett, who produced her uh, um, Hell Among the Yearlings, which is one of my favorite albums. Which I really I he produced her debut as well. Yeah, maybe. I think he did. But if you find a Jillian Welch um, album, and it... Anywhere, just just pick it up. It, it, it's it's great. I've seen her a couple of times, it, and she plays with her husband, who's a fantastic guitarist, who's actually worked with guys like Ryan Adams, and um, and it, it's just it, her albums are amazing. The production on them is amazing. It's very sparse, and the way that Amy Lou Harris does this version of this her song is. Very reverential, very true to the to the song, and I think that Jillian Welch would even say, "Yeah, that was better than my version." This is a song about an orphan girl who 
decides that her hope is with God and yep. she's a, she, I love this. I have, I've had friendships pure and golden, but the ties of kinship, I have not known them. Um, she has no mother, no father, no sister, no brother. She is an orphan. Uh, but she knows that God's going to call her and she'll meet all of them. But she asks that in the time between that and now, that he will be, her savior will be her mother, father's sister and brother. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's powerful stuff. I, which I think I need to research this, but I think she was adopted. Um, but yeah, I, I think she, I don't know. In I, I'm not sure that I've seen anything as powerful in such short words. That's one of the reasons I love her. She, she just her lyrics are just heart wrenching. She was in fact adopted. Wow. So anyway, um, if you get this album. Go somewhere by yourself there. <laughs> and also, but you're going to start adopting everybody you see after you hear this. Song. Yeah. And another thing that's going to happen is you're going to start seeking out these artists yeah, that have written I, it, these songs. Yeah. And it, 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 there's some, you know, when I was saying there's some crossover with some of the stuff we've done, there's a little bit of similarity with the, um, they're completely different albums, but a little bit of similarity with the modern sounds of country and Western music. And that there's an artist who's taken other people's songs and put them through his own filter. Yeah. Ray yeah. Charles and made them his own. But you want to, if, if you come at that from not knowing what those songs are, you want to go out, you want to go find out go yeah, find out who yeah. they are. Yeah. Um, and well, that's, it's precisely the case here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially this is, this is worth checking out. I mean, again, it's difficult especially if you hear this one first to, to go back and say, you know, uh, to, to listen to it, listen to the original or the, the, not the original, but I guess the Jillian Welsh version of it with fresh ears, but it's definitely worth picking up. Oh yeah. She does. She's, a great, she's, she does a great job. I mean, the song, the song could be read and it would blow you away. Yeah. That's how yeah. good of a song it is. But yeah. her version is fantastic. Emily's is fantastic. Uh, Probably anybody could make a, a hit out of it. Yeah. If yeah. you if you hear this song first, you're going to have a house full of orphans that you run out and adopt because of the, <laughs> <laughs> the compelling nation of the compelling yeah. nature of this song. All right. Next up is Blackhawk, which is a Daniel Lenoir song. Blackhawk and the White Winged Dove. My God, what a! I think this is my favorite song on the album. I watched an interview and he thought it was too. He thought Precious. it was too um, sentimental. Yeah, to put on the album, and Emily Harris just said, "No way, this is getting on the record." <laughs> and of course, she's right. Um, it is extremely sentimental. Yes. It is about a man and a girl who meet, marry, have kids, and get old. Yeah. And when they meet, it's all 
happy, wonderful things. And when they get old, they start struggling with the realities, but they still remember the old days. It's it's a powerful, powerful song. Yeah, and again, this this is uh, goes to Daniel Lanois ability to write a song he's not a prolific songwriter by any stretch of the imagination but when he does knock out some songs they're usually pretty good i mean he's irritating to see (laughs) uh live because he's a little a little bit pretentious but um he does write some amazing songs well i work a double shift in a bookstore on saint Clair. While he pushes burning ingots in Dofresco's stinking air. That's what happens when you're old. You do that instead of uh, watching people's boots point up to the sky. All right. Anyway, Black Hawk and the White Winged Dove is my favorite song on this album. About two young lovers turning into two old lovers. It's my favorite uh, song lyrically. Yeah. It's... Well, it's no wrecking ball. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the fact that he wanted to lead this off and Emmylou Harris had to drag him into it is uh, a testament to Emmylou. Maybe Harris. it's a little bit of him going, no, 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 please don't, don't make me, don't, don't, don't make me do it. It could be, uh, yeah, it could be. We uh-huh. all right. Um, well, we're. Wrapping it up with the last song on the album, Waltz Across Texas Tonight, co-written by Rodney Crowley. But the moon is so full, the stars are so bright, and my hand is steady, my touch is alive. Look in my eyes, hold on real love, won't you, darling, across Texas tonight? Won't you, darling, across Texas tonight? I don't think we talked about the hot band at all, did we? And we really didn't. Band. And she had a fantastic band back in her for Rodney Crowell was the uh, what rhythm guitarist, and, and Albert Lee was in it. Albert um, Lee and uh, Ricky Skaggs. Yeah, it was a heck of a. It was something else. It was something else. If you get get that, can was uh, it Blue Kentucky Girl? Yeah, and uh, Roses in the Snow. That's a both of those albums have the hot band, and they are it's. Just hot. I mean, that appropriately named. I will. I will say this about this song. Ian, you guys are probably going to toss me out on my head when I say this. This is this is the one song where I just and this is a nitpick. It, I, I freely admit this. Where the production feels like it gets a bit in the way of the song to me. I kind of wish it had it's had more of that kind of the orphan girl you know, treatment. Yeah, you know? I'm going to agree like with you. It belongs on a different record. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to agree with both of y'all on that. I mean, I, it does it like I said, it's a nitpick. It doesn't ruin the song for me. It's just when I'm listening to it, if I'm if I'm critic listening to it critically, I'm like, eh, this is the Yeah, one they song didn't where need to do it this way. It was a, yeah. it's a little right. over Lenoir, if you will. Yeah, and I think Lenoir probably went, what the hell am I going to do with this song and it, it didn't it didn't match I understand his predicament when this song appeared. appeared. Yeah. It's it's like uh, we need fiddles, we need uh, steel guitar. Yeah, this is not what we're doing here. Yeah. and uh, he kind of he kind of got blindsided with this. Yeah, there's a problem here. <laughs> the moon is so full and the stars are so bright. 
Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does you, it? You don't get that. You, you don't get, <laughs> if the moon's full, you can't see the stars. <laughs> maybe she's talking. Well, about maybe it's like a like couple. Of, like I've been in uh, West Texas before, where the moon is out and it uh, goes behind the horizon, or and maybe the stars, the stars come out. are she, different. She didn't clarify that. Yeah, I know. She probably it's needed a different to kind of moon. Maybe some guys walking around <laughs> without his shorts on or something. Who knows? But the main thing is. Uh, Waltz Cross Texas is one more reason why we're the experts on this album. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to uh, kind of wrap things up with a with a quote from Daniel Lenoir that I think is kind of on point to this album. This is a quote: "I think great art has always had contradiction in it. The peacefulness of that Hopper painting Nighthawks, the tranquility of that image, and the reassurance of opulence." And there's so much confidence and so much wealth in this culture, and yet the people at the bar are lonely. And so the loneliness sort of intercepts the seemingly stable parts of the painting. The Last Supper will have betrayal hidden in there somewhere, and so on. So I think if you're going to get that in music, it's a cool thing. And I think that kind of sums this up. I wow, mean, that's there actually... Is a contra- yeah. There's a contradiction kind of buried throughout this whole album of who Emmy Lou Harris represents and what she represents in this sort of this country music uh, royalty yeah. and what she's done before and what she does these songs and the fact that she's providing the melody to these sonic yeah. soundscapes that yeah. have that I mean that's just layers. and think about it that's not probably the easiest thing in the world to do yeah did y'all hear the quote from that she uh, she did country but she didn't in hell uh, <laughs> well that's pretty good um it, it you know she did her first album at folk album has a Hank Williams song on it but she even admits that when she was doing that stuff it was kind of tongue firm, firmly planted in cheek yeah. and she didn't realize the depth of what country country music had to offer until she met Graham Parsons because um, well say referring what you, to her own quote she said I inhaled the hell out of it oh uh, that's pretty good <laughs> that's funny sorry I didn't mean to cut that off Doug so uh, JM I understand you have a recommendation. I do very much. Um, Daniel Lanois made his first solo album uh, called Akaday. And the thing that's kind of surprising about it is you would think it would just be sonically just weird and just have all these uh, treatments and everything on his guitar. And there is some of that, but most of it is just almost folky. And he kind of demonstrates his ability to play acoustic guitar. He sings a lot of songs in French. Um, and it's a it's a fine album. If you had to think of French-Canadian fun music, you know, like Day is almost Cajun. You're quelqu'un qui appelle mon nom. You're quelqu'un qui appelle mon nom. On travaille aujourd'hui. Song and like I said, a lot of the songs are sung in French. Um, there is some atmospheric stuff that that goes on in it, um, but the probably the biggest hit that came off of it is the maker. Oh, oh deep water. Cold like the night. 
Uh, That's a fine song. Very fine song. Again, another religious song. And it's been covered by a lot of people, including Willie Nelson. Yeah. Um, On? Teatro. Which is produced produced by? by Daniel Lenoir. Well, he feet. So, Doug, I'd like to first go to you. What uh, what do you rate this album both for what it represents in terms of musically and whether or not it's something you would listen to again? I would give it a uh, four point seven as a rating for its quality, and I would give it a five as far as how much I like it. Okay, that's good. How about you, Jam? I think I can't believe I'm about to say this. Exact, exact same thing that Doug said. I uh, I would probably give it a five, a four point seven as well. I think that's a perfect, uh, perfect mark for what the album does. I, I tries to accomplish. I'm not going to say a five. Um, I did I did like this album a lot, but I pro- probably a four point three is what I would give it. That's it for tonight's show. Next week we'll be looking at the second album made by Elvis Costello his first with the attractions, this year's model. Remember, we're on Facebook and Instagram, and we're on Gmail, tappingvinyl at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at tappingvinyl. So for our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your very humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11.